You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Today, we're on our last on shame. And yes, there is such a thing. People have asked me, well, well, isn't shame a good... Yes, we want some, because shame... Uh, gives us the proper boundaries in life at times of when to say, what to say, and how to say it, rather than um, just being shameless. We've got a lot of shamelessness going on, and it's not a good thing. But um, most of the time that you experience shame, and I do these days, it's chronic, and it's kind of destructive in our lives. And that's what we're looking at today. Why are we talking about shame? Because of how destructive it can be, but also because the Bible actually talks about it a lot. We started in Genesis 3 <clears throat> with the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden and how they were ashamed at their nakedness then. And we can see it, and you can run all the way through Revelation with this theme and see how it all ties in on how God will cover us, not just take away our shame, but covers us with his honor, with his glory, and his goodness, and his delight. That's what we're after today. And we will see all sorts of words in the Bible for shame and honor and glory, such as lament or courage or boldness or fear. And they're all different ways that shame is experienced or things that correlate with shame. So that's why we're talking about it. And Brene Brown, who is a researcher on shame, says why we also need to talk about it. She writes, shame is that gremlin who says, never good enough. Have you ever had that feeling like, I'm never good enough? Yeah. And if, she says, if you can talk out shame out of that one, it says to you, who do you think you are? Yeah. Shame, she said, is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders. And here's what you need to know even more. Guilt is inversely correlated with those things. So shame is really what's behind much of our cultural issues these days. And it does beg the question, how do we overcome it? Where do we take shame? How do we handle it? And I'll tell you, our tribalism of people identifying with one group or another against the others is just another, another symptom of how shame and shaming others is endemic in our society. Our authoritarianism, the fact that we want someone to lead us who's strong and able to push people around, just shows how we're dealing with our insecurities and vulnerabilities. And sadly, much religion these days is really just like the fig leaf in Genesis 3 that tries to cover shame, but it's never enough, it's never ending, and you just have to keep doing it, doing it, doing it, never to really solve the problem of shame. Today, though, we're going to look at how Paul says what really resolves shame. And he writes this in Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what's ironic about this is the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, which is the most shameful form of death one could ever experience, crucifixion. And yet that becomes good news. 
And today we're going to be discussing from this text three points. We're back to three again, yes. What is the gospel? So you understand what we're talking about. Why is it good news for the shame? And how does one access the power of the gospel that he talks about here? So what's the gospel? All the way through the first part of this book of Romans, that let, uh, the letter to the Romans, Paul uses the term gospel again and again and again. And it is the Greek word, yes, Greek again here, euangelion. U, E-U, or epsilon, upsilon, that beginning means good. And angelion, can you hear? Angel is in that word. Or messenger, or proclaimer. It's the good news. And Paul is saying, the good news comes to you in the way that it did that day and age. You know, today we've got a lot of different types of media, ways to proclaim information or news. In that day, there was really only one. They didn't have telegraphs, telephones. <laughs> they didn't even have that much writing because writing, they couldn't mass produce writings. And even when a letter was written, it was sent with someone to read it because 90% of the people were illiterate. So the news came always with, by a person who proclaimed the news. And in fact, for example, the battle at Marathon. Have you ever heard of a marathon before? It was proclaimed the victory that the Athenians got over the Persians at the Battle of Marathon was proclaimed by a runner who ran 26 and what, a quarter miles? 26.2 kilometers, 26.2 miles, I don't remember. Too far, I'm not running it, okay? <laughs> Ever. <laughs> but he ran all the way back to Athens to proclaim the victory, the good news of this victory. And when he proclaimed the victory, he cried out, anyone know? Nike, huh, the tennis shoe, uh, which means victory, and he collapsed and died. <laughs> I know, it's a true story, okay? It's a true story, that's the way it happens. That's how we brand things, you know, we find, but anyways, the point is, that's how you proclaim something. And that's why in the book of Isaiah, I don't have a slide for this, but Isaiah says, how beautiful are the, not the mouth, not the eyes, the feet of him who brings good news. You had to have somebody who actually embodied that good news, brought it to you. And that's how the gospel came to people, is through people. The gospel's about the news media of the day. The gospel's still about that. It's about good news that is proclaimed, not good advice, but good news. That's the biggest difference between Christianity and religion. Christianity is good news. Religion is good advice. Now, you ask somebody about what, <clears throat> what is Christianity all about? And likely what a response will be something like, well, Christianity, when you get down to it, is about loving your neighbor as yourself, or it's about following Jesus, which are both good things, and I'd like people to do that more these days especially, but that's good advice. That's just good advice. It's not good news. 
because there's really no power. Telling someone you should love your neighbor as yourself just tells them what to do, but doesn't give them the power to do it. Telling you should be more like Jesus doesn't give anybody the power to actually follow Jesus. The gospel is good news. Good news, and we'll get more to that. But So that's why I really say religion is kind of like a shame sandwich. It's just different ways that are brought to you. It might be delicious, it might look good, but it's just slathered in shame saying, here you go, do these things, and then you're good enough. But you try to do those things, and you're never good enough. And you don't meet the standards. And you fall short. And you feel unworthy and flawed and found wanting. And that's exactly what good advice does for you. There's no breakthrough in your life if you think that you have to do something to be a Christian. There's only breakthrough in your life if you realize what has been done for you by Jesus and proclaim to you as a free gift and the victory you have as a result of the battle he won for you. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, later in this letter, it is while we were still weak. You can say weak, helpless, incapable, unworthy, flawed, broken. That's exactly when Christ came and died, not for good people or some people, but for the ungodly all people, all of us. That's good news. That means it fits me and it fits you all the time, everywhere. No one's left out. But I think we have to ask this next question. Why is this really good news? I mean, it's just news, right? It's just information. No, it's not just information, Paul would say. No. Paul would say, this is news like you've never heard. This is news of your change in status that God has brought about in Jesus Christ. That your change in status brings you a new change in your future through this. It's the victory God has given in Jesus to give you a whole new status before him and a whole new future in front of you. So Paul will say in Romans 1.16, as we read, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power. And that word there is dynamite, dynamis, the power of God for salvation. It changes your status so that you are saved, that you are uh, brought salvation to you, to everyone who believes. And then he goes on and says, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's given to you as a gift. Now, another word for that word righteousness there is the term that Paul will use in this letter called justification. And those terms are actually much more related in the Greek than they are in the English. Because in English, we think justification is this thing over here, which we don't hardly ever use that word, and righteousness is over here. But when you see how the Greek works, dikaiosune is the Greek for righteousness. And dikaiao is the verb to justify. Justification and righteousness are hand and glove. In other words, God declares you righteous. That's justification. Paul will put it this way in Romans chapter 3. He goes into a detailed verse. This, is, this could be five sermons 
all in a row in just Romans 3. But we're going to just try to summarize what he says here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. You don't get it by following the commandments. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, although they point to it, they don't deliver it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus is for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are in a condition of shame, which is dishonor without the glory of God. That's what that means. And we are justified, that is, made righteous, declared righteous as a gift of his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood. It all happened through Jesus sacrificing his life, pouring out his blood at that cross, and it's to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who has faith in Jesus. Now, here's the deal. Jesus, God is righteous, but that doesn't mean he's just right. His righteousness is a actually act. He acts it out and makes you right with him. That's what he does. He doesn't sit back and say, I'm right you're wrong, and be happy with it. That's not, no, his righteousness is I'm right and I'm going to make you righteous. I'm right and I'm going to make things right between us. I'm going to make sure it happens. So that's what he does. He justifies us. Just as if I'd never sinned, justified. Just before God. He changes the whole thing. So we are declared that. It's a gift from outside of us. It's a whole new status that you live up to. So, you know, so many people think, okay, being a Christian means your sins are forgiven, you know? Well, that's true, but that's just the start. That's just the start. God doesn't just, you know, pardon your sins. First of all, you're definitely not on parole. You know, what parole is, is when you get out, but now you got to, Make sure you're good. Too many churches I know treat people as if they're on parole. You know, they guilt them then and shame them to keep trying to be good and make sure they keep showing up. You're not on parole. You are pardoned. It is gone. It is finished. It is clean. But you don't just have a clean slate. No, you are forgiven. And then God gives you Jesus' very own righteousness. So it's kind of like you got out of jail, you are totally exonerated of all charges, and then you are made the ambassador for the country and given a bank account to spend as an ambassador of billions of dollars at your disposal to do what's right to glorify the nation that you're in. And that's your status. That's what God does. It's not just the removal of the negative, but it's the bestowal of the greatest positive you can ever imagine. So God replaces your shame with honor. God takes away your guilt and gives you his glory. So that you are a son, not a slave, that you are a daughter, 
and not under some debt. You are given the status, the authority as God's very own. Romans is as... <laughs> Paul says in Romans 8 that it's not simply you're giving a nice little status. You are, he made a co-heir of Christ. Everything that belongs to Jesus is now yours. Everything. Which is, I can't even describe that. And you go like, this all sounds great, but somehow it's just not sinking in. How do I access that power? Paul says it's simply by faith. You connect by trusting in Jesus, kind of plugging into his power. But you might go, well, great, but I don't ha how do I get faith? That is even a gift from God. You see, faith is not something you've got to conjure up, you've got to have enough of in order to. No. Faith is merely hearing the proclamation of this good news and saying, yeah, that's for me. I want that. I need that. And you repeat back to God what he's already said of you. He says, you're righteous. I say, I am righteous before him. That I am a child of God. I am an heir. I am glorious. I am his delight. I'm his beloved. I am given the status of royalty because of Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. This is exactly what happens in the book of Acts. You see these disciples who, if you want to talk about shame, the disciples of Jesus Christ should have been the most ashamed people on the face of the earth because they had turned away from Jesus in his greatest need. They believed he was the Son of God, and yet they abandoned him. They ran away from him. They didn't defend him. They denied him. They denied they even knew him. I mean, they should have been disgusted with themselves. And they probably were. And then we see this turnaround in the book of Acts, where they are just courageous and bold. And it's astonishing. And you go like, how is that possible? Because you see, one of the things, and what they are bold and courageous about proclaiming is the most shameful thing that was known in the Roman world. John Forrester is right when he says, within the construct of Mediterranean culture, the idea of a crucified leader was untenable, unthinkable. It was unheard of. In fact, <coughs> crucifixion was the most shameful death anyone could ever experience. Um, Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. She says, shaming another person is part of a process of declaring him worthless without even the dignity of a four-footed beast, more like an insect to be squashed. Crucifixion was a manner of execution that piled shame upon shame to show the victim was not fit for the company, uh, for human company at any level. And in fact, what happened in the known world at that time, when people were crucified, they were forgotten. Up until the name, uh, time of Jesus, we do not know, even the thousands of people were crucified in various forms. We don't know of one person by name who was crucified because it was so shameful. It wasn't just wiping the person out of life. It was wiping them out of human history and memory. And then all of a sudden, 
the disciples take what was the most shameful thing to happen to anyone, and they glory in it. They are thrilled by it. They celebrate it. And boldness is what characterized them. In fact, 40 different times in the New Testament, a word comes up, a word family comes up, which is called parousia. And it does mean often in our translation, boldness or courage, the freedom to speak and say the truth at great risk to self. And they didn't care anymore. In fact, and the, one of the better examples of this is in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John had been preaching about Jesus and his death and resurrection and talked about the cross and his resurrection. They were arrested and brought before the religious rulers of their day. They were bought, brought before the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of Israel, the supreme court of religion of their day, and they were shamed in front of them. How dare you speak? Who do you think you are? You've got to be kidding. And this is what happens. They get up, they speak, they say salvation is found and no one else, no other name under heaven has been given to men by which we must be saved. And then the Sanhedrin looks at these men and this is what the response is. Now when they saw the boldness, parousia, of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they had nothing in themselves. They had no degrees before them. Here we've got the scholars, the people who have studied uh, the scriptures in and out for years. And here these two uneducated, common men with nothing to their name were bold enough to preach. The Sanhedrin is astonished. And they recognized, here's kind of a key line Luke throws in, that they had been with Jesus. That's what covered their shame. They'd been with Jesus. John Forster says, Parousia stands in opposition to shame. It, if shame is a category of hiddenness, wordlessness, abomination, or rejection, parousis is a category of openness, public speech, confidence, and face-to-faceness. And in fact, here's the key. He says, being with Jesus had shame to prove to these men. There's nothing that the Sanhedrin could have said. There's no threat that they could have made against their life. There is nothing in all of creation that could have ever gotten to them and taken away what Jesus had given them freely. The gospel is what covers our shame. And more than that, gives us his, God's honor and privilege. And, and we know his delight is with us. <sighs> This week, um, Jaden has been really ministering one-on-one -on -one with a number of students and with one student in particular who is just, I think, dealing with this issue and wondering why bad things are happening in his life. And he's saying to himself, oh, I think God is punishing me and I deserve it. And it's like, no, never. Not in the wildest dreams would that ever be the God who sent his own son to death on the cross to cover your shame and give you honor and glory. You might be going through some tough things, but that is, believe it or not, a privilege and an honor that you are being considered a son of God and you are following in the steps of Jesus.
don't ever think God is punishing you. He sent all of that to his son. So you get his favor in every circumstance, even going through tough times. And this understanding of boldness, John Forrester writes, Paresis operates at that interface of church and the world. When outward circumstances appear to dictate caution in order to avoid shame, Christians exhibit boldness and confidence, particular in speaking of their Lord. Thus, paresis is grace for shame, particularly in regard to the sharing of the gospel. You know, people might point out your faults. People might say, who do you think you are telling me about Jesus? And you might think to yourself, yeah, who am I? Because... I'm uneducated, I'm common, and like the disciples, I've also done some stuff I should be ashamed of. You still have boldness because Jesus has endowed you with his honor and glory. They might try to sully your reputation in the media, but it's no effect on the position you have already been given in Christ. They may try to claim that unless you're part of their group or their party or vote their way, For their candidate, you're going to be an outcast. But they can't accomplish any of that because you've already been welcomed into the kingdom of God by God himself. Shame has lost its power over you. No amount of physical power can change your identity and destiny God has done that through the sacrificial love of Christ at the cross. The world can try to throw bullets and bombs at you. Death can try to take charge of you. But nothing can change your future. Nothing can change what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. The devil can try to accuse, but he has no power to make one word true. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus Romans 8 says it this way, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the gospel is not just an academic exercise to get your doctrines in a row and to kind of check the box and figure it out. It changes your destiny. Whether people realize it or not in this world, they are carrying around a lot of shame. And everyone is desperately struggling for this thing called righteousness. Now, they might not talk about it in those terms. They might not use the word justification or anything. But they're still talking about wanting to be enough, of being content, of feeling good about themselves. Those are all code words for the same thing. And God not only covers your shame, he not only takes away your shame, but he covers you with his approval, with his blessing, with his love, with his forgiveness, with his restoration, with the dignity of being a child of God, with his love in such a way that you are his beloved. That's what changes everything. You're covered with the glory of Jesus himself. And he is not ashamed of you. And therefore, we can say we are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you this day. (sighs) 
Oh, it's so nice to share the gospel, this good news that you've given to us, that it's not tied to our performance at all. In fact, it's because of our performance that we need it, Lord, and we thank you for that, that you give it to us as a gift, that Jesus has performed everything. He has accomplished it all, given it to us. It is finished. It is accomplished. It is for us. We trust you, Lord, with our lives now. We pray, Lord, that you know um, the deep-rooted senses that we have, the words that we speak to ourselves, the false uh, realities that we think are so true yet about our shame and our inadequacies. Lord, take our eyes off ourselves. May we look to you, Lord Jesus, in all things. May we we become bold (coughs) as the disciples became bold after the resurrection. Fill us with your spirit. Cover us with your glory in such a way that we gloriously share the good news and the joy of the gospel with others around us, Lord God. You know that so many people in this world right now are experiencing levels and burdens of shame in their lives, Lord, and we ask that you would help us to minister to them. You know, the people that we need to listen to one-on-one and to share just your patience with them, to mirror back to them their value and worth that we can be like you, Lord Jesus, in those ways to them, Lord. They need it now, and we need you to work through that, Lord, to bring your good news to them, that we would be the feet that walk to that person and speak those words of victory that you have for them, Lord, that you have for us. Thank you, Lord. Lord, you know people are going through tough times right now economically. You know how uh, inflation has been eating away at income, Lord God, and we pray that you provide, as you always have in our lives, that you provide now, that you provide the right, um, the right work, the right employment, the gifts, that we can be the community that you've made us here, Lord, that we can reach out to others. So bless uh, the food drives, Lord. Um, Thank you for Erin and her being a vessel to share with Grace Place these uh, these gifts. We pray that you would also be continuing to work through us at Interfaith Food Bank and for our Thanksgiving food drive as well, Lord, that you are glorified in all of this, that we can proclaim your victory in this world, that we can be a blessing to others. We also, Lord, um, ask that you would be with those who are struggling with their feelings of inadequacy, their um, feelings of failure. And the times that we do fail, Lord, that we turn to you. You know, if we would say we have no sin, we would just be deceiving ourselves and the truth wouldn't be in us. But as we confess our sins to you, our failures, our faults, you forgive our sins. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then you also honor us, Lord, to be your children. And we thank you for that, Lord God. We ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your glory and your goodness, Lord Jesus, as we come to the Lord's Supper today. That you freely offer yourself to cover us, to be with us, to commune with us, Lord. That you want us, that you have no more delight no greater sense of joy than welcoming us to your table this day. We thank you for that, Lord. We ask also, Lord, for those who need your healing in our congregation today, for Otto after his procedure, for Mike and Dick, 
for Tom, Lord, for Dean, for many others, Lord, who um, have been facing physical ailments, for Dan as he is recovering as well, Lord God. Bring your healing to bear on each of these, your servants, that they may be actively serving you and rejoicing in your goodness in their lives. All these things we lift up to you today, Lord, and now as we offer our offerings to you, our tithes, we just want to give honor and glory to you because, Jesus, you are the name above every name, and at your name, all heaven and earth and even those under the earth will bow and confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. <laughs> 